Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the April 2020 podcast. So these are very strange times. Uh, I have no wish to add to the deluge of information and often misinformation that we've all been subjected to about COVID-19. And of course, it is something that is affecting literally virtually everybody on the planet. Obviously, it has implications for us all on a personal level, a social level work and financial level, family level. There's just about no aspect of our lives which haven't been affected either now or will be in the future. And there are many things, I'm sure, that will change completely even after it's all over, possibly on occasions for the good, sometimes not for not for so good, but things will change. So uh, it is a completely unique set of circumstances that none of us have ever experienced anything quite like before. And of course, as magicians, we are naturally enough in our magical lives affected too. As performers, it's clear already that a lot of the bookings that we thought we had for the rest of the year, many of them have been cancelled, even some that are quite a long way ahead because everybody's so uncertain and are cancelling things left, right and centre. And the number of inquiries coming in has dropped away to virtually nothing. And in fact, to be honest with you, any inquiry that does come in for some social event or a wedding or anything like that, I look upon with suspicion. I think, what's the point of replying to this? Because it's only in two months' time and the chances are this is not going to be taking place when we get there. So what's the point in me telling them what I can do? It's very demotivating. And of course, there are wider implications in the magic world too, apart from just shows. You think about magic clubs, they've had to cancel all their meetings. This is not only means that the regular get together of magicians in any given area stops. And for some people may never start again because they get out of the habit of going. But of course, the various lecturers who have been booked perhaps over the next few months to entertain and lecture at the club suddenly they'll be cancelled too. They lose the fee, they lose the potential sales. So once again, it has a wider implication over more than just the members in the club themselves. And then you think about conventions. I should imagine that Blackpool is hugely relieved that all this didn't start a little bit sooner because if it had and it had affected Blackpool and they'd had to cancel it or postpone it and just leave it until the following year, Imagine the administrative and financial um, sort of fallout from all of that. It would have been absolutely colossal since there were such huge numbers of people and such large amounts of money involved. So it's it's all been a, a very, very difficult time and it's going to no doubt be difficult for several weeks into the future, if not months into the future. You hear various comments that it could be literally next year, a year, 18 months till everything's completely back to normal. Yes, it could. We just don't know. I suspect that what probably will happen is that it'll, there'll be a peak and that as it starts to come down, the, the various things that have been all cancelled will gradually start to, especially things that are not where lots of people are coming together, uh, like sporting fixtures where have a problem when they're attracting like a football stadium has 40,000 people in it or something, then that's some serious problem uh, that they have to get around. 
and uh, the sporting fixture congestion and, and difficulties with all the money especially involved in, in top level football is a real problem. Us as magicians, shows will perhaps gradually, as people get the confidence to feel that they can have events again, then hopefully those those will come back on stream. But it may take quite a while for people to get that confidence back. So I guess we've all just got to be patient, try and sit it out, and hope that eventually things will get back to some semblance of normality. One of the most common questions that people who are new to strolling magic or table hopping magic ask is about how you approach a table. And there are all sorts of various things that need to be considered, perhaps in order to do it well and to not get a rejected and to get into a group in, a, in an efficient and pleasant way. But there's one overarching thing that we often don't consider, and that is... Do we as performers actually have the right to interrupt people in the first place and insist that they, they do watch the magic? Because you can look at it in two different ways. On the one hand, if we are employed by a venue or an event to be part of the entertainment and our remit and what we're being paid for is to go up to tables or groups and interrupt them and entertain them, then you'd say, well, of course we have the right and on that level, we do, because we are official business as far as the event is concerned. And I guess if you're going to a, a dinner or something like that with lots of other entertainment going on as well, the people who buy the tickets to come to these things, well, they're expecting entertainment as well as a meal. That's what they've actually paid for. And if they don't get the entertainment, they say, well, where the heck's the magician? So in that sense, we do, I think, have the right to interrupt people. Of course, judging exactly the moment to interrupt people when they because people don't sit around generally speaking, do they not speaking to each other in anticipation of you arriving so that you don't interrupt them. You are nearly always going to be cutting across at least two people's conversation and how you handle that and the sensitivity with which you do that interruption will determine at least initially how well you're going to be received by that group but nevertheless I think under those sort of circumstances we are totally within our rights to do what we have to do in order to get their attention to entertain them. Where you start to get into a slightly more grey area is perhaps at something like um, just a, a regular evening in a restaurant or in a hotel where the venue wants you to, to entertain people. Sometimes it can be in the lounge area after a meal, so they want to provide a little value added for the hotel residents or something like that. So in that sense, um, you are official there, of course. You haven't just wandered in off the street with a pack of cards in your hand. But from the people's point of view, they, they weren't perhaps expecting to be entertained. They perhaps didn't know that this was something that was likely to happen. They just went down to the restaurant in the hotel to have a meal. Next thing they know, they got some sweaty bloke with a pack of cards and some sponge bowls trying to entertain them. And and so there, do we have the right to interrupt them? The, the other question is, should we should we ask whether it's right, that whether we're, that people are okay with us entertaining them? Because if we don't feel we have the the right to actually get on and do it, then isn't it correct that we should ask whether it's okay? Sometimes it will be. Most of the times it probably will be. 
but occasionally it really may not be the right moment. Well, there could be all sorts of reasons for that. It's a business conversation or this, they've just had some bad news or, you know, there can be reasons why people who are in a social setting may not actually be feeling in a very good mood and not very open or receptive to what you have to offer. So I think when we don't have this right, as I feel we do at a dinner at a dinner event where there's lots of entertainment, I think being slightly more sensitive and asking in a, a very positive way, explaining who you are and what you're going to do, that it's free and so on and so forth, and, and making the assumption as you ask, so is it okay if I show you some magic? In a very positive way. At least it does give people who are genuinely have a reason why it absolutely is not what we want now to say no. Because under those circumstances, I don't think we do have the right to insist that they watch. I remember that years and years ago, Tommy Wonder wrote an article for one of the books that I published to do with the symposium. And he said that he didn't think people had the right to say no to his magic because they hadn't seen his magic. And therefore, they had no right to make a decision about whether it was going to be for them or not. And on one level, I can see that that's that's probably a reasonable thing to say. But on another level, it isn't because they may not be judging whether your magic is good enough for them or whether they're interested in your magic as opposed to anybody else's. It may be just at the moment, that actual individual 10 minutes, perhaps, or that evening simply isn't time when they want to watch magic. And I think we do have to be sensitive about that. So I think whether we have the right or not to entertain people, there is a little bit of um, light and shade here. And I think being sensitive to our position and not being too over assertive in situations where it isn't really appropriate is a very good thing. As a member of the Vienna Magic Circle, I'm obviously entitled to get copies of the Magic Circular, the monthly magazine of the Society. And I have the digital version. And I must admit, I, I find myself batch reading. I don't tend to read them, download them and read them often in the actual month that they've been issued. But then I do perhaps download two or three at a time and then I read through them at that point. And there's often some really interesting articles, re interesting and very well written articles in amongst uh, the various society reports and other things that uh, are necessary to have in a club magazine. And there were a couple of things that uh, I wanted to talk about that I sort of read about and prompted some thoughts. And uh, the first was from the uh, the January 2020 uh, uh, copy. And it was Tony Middleton, who um, has very been very successful at running rather exclusive upmarket magic shows in in beautiful London hotel venues. And uh, he was talking about getting residences because he has had a number of very long running ones. And his advice was rather than sending publicity via email or even, I, I guess, through snail mail, rather than sending that and just hoping that somebody will see it and, and pick it up, he suggests that you actually just walk into the venue and demand to see somebody in authority so that you can talk to them about what you can do. And I was thinking about this. I'm thinking that, gosh, you would really need an awful lot of confidence to do it in quite that way. Because if you didn't have confidence, you could come across and you try to overcompensate, if you like, 
uh, and took that advice, you could come across as being arrogant, you could come across as being demanding, and maybe that's not the best start. It's like anything else, really, isn't it? It's a bit like cold calling. If you're in the middle of something, it might be something that you you need a lot of concentration, and the phone rings, and you, oh, so you answer the phone, and it's somebody trying to sell you something that, and you hadn't asked them to ring you, you feel irrationally annoyed. Well, I know I do, about not only the fact that they that they're trying to sell me something I don't want, but the fact that they've rung me in the first place. Why should I, I? I guess I shouldn't have answered the phone, but you do. You tend to pick it up, don't you? When it rings, you don't know who it's going to be, perhaps. And and that feeling of, of annoyance at being interrupted at an inopportune moment surely is how the person would feel if you marched into an upmarket venue and demanded to see the, the events manager or, or the, the person in charge of, uh, of corporate uh, functions and things like that. I would imagine the same thing applies, doesn't it? These people are not sitting around waiting for your for you to go in and speak to them. So to say that you can just walk in, uh, I think is perhaps could be taken by some people who haven't got the experience to handle that sensitively and well, might be not quite the advice that they want. I would I would have thought that, yes, you want to get in the door and speak to people, but sending something in advance even if you don't get a response to it at least so that you can refer to what you've sent is at least a good way to go also finding out in advance who the right person is to speak to and if at all possible finding out when they're there because in the hotel trade particularly people are not there nine to five are they like they are in offices they they come sometimes they're out weekends some evenings sometimes they're not there on a Monday morning so you could spend a lot of time going in and out trying to find this person in and they're just never there and that looks all a bit uh, going off at a at a half cocked way so that's not much good either so I think it does take quite a lot of planning but certainly face to face is good if you can get somebody to agree to, for you to come and see them then clearly. If you're a good, reasonably good salesperson, can sell you and what you do and show them some magic and, and, and relate what you do to why it's important or could be important and valuable to them as a venue, then if you do your homework right, yes, then seeing somebody is definitely the way to go. But I'm not sure wandering in off the street to somewhere that you're quite fancy working in on its own would be enough. The other article that I enjoyed from the circular came in the March edition and it was David Tompkins who rather normally he does um, gives details of one of his children's routines for you to make up and use in your act. But on this particular column, he decided to give loads of examples of amusing things that clients, potential bookers, had either written or said to him when making an inquiry. And and it really is quite eye-opening and very funny. Um, For instance, one person said, Hello, I'm inquiring about availability and costs for a female children's entertainer to either come dressed as a princess or fairy or not dressed at all and able to do balloon modelling. Or there was another one where it said, I'm having a first birthday party for my daughter. We did have an entertainer booked. 
However, she's cancelled as she can no longer make it. We'd like an entertainer to attend the party for five hours. We already have a magician and a face painter booked, but if you can offer us a better deal for all that, we're open-minded. So it's, it's, it's this kind of thing that uh, and there are loads of examples and some of them are really funny. But what it, what it tells you, and it's an interesting point, I think, is that the booker often has absolutely no idea what they're doing and what they really want. Or if they do, what they want is just not practical, possible or desirable. I think as entertainers, sometimes we can be perhaps a little bit too deferential to a booker when they because we want we want to get the booking but when the booker says things and we think oh well that's not really very good or and you find yourself perhaps if you're a little bit inexperienced saying yes you'll to something that is actually going to be a disaster I mean, the, the woman who said we want a ma- magician there for five hours clearly has no idea at all of the length of time that's appropriate so if you go okay yes well what are you going to do for five hours it's, you've got to think about these things. Can you deliver what she or he, the booker, thinks that you're going to do? Because if you're not, they're not going to be, if you can't, they're not going to be happy. So trying to be a little bit circumspect about what you agree to, I think it's a really good thing. And I, and I like to, if I can, to, because I know, as we all do, I know from experience what I can deliver and what will work and what will be best for whatever the event is that this person is trying to organise. I've been to hundreds of them over the years. They may be organising their first one. I, by definition, am bound to know more what is going to work than they will, even though I don't know perhaps the venue or the people. I've been to lots of similar events and I've got a reasonably good idea. So what I like to do is I let them tell me what they want. And then I say, yeah, that'd be fine. But um, actually, what might be a good idea is if... And then I start to give them slight alternatives, gradually moving them away from what they actually asked for to something that I know would be a a lot better and that I could personally deliver more effectively. And I've done this a lot over the years, got quite used to, don't feel like, sort of redirecting their aspirations and not being afraid to say no that's actually I don't think that's going to work very well can I suggest instead that and I think when you've got a bit of experience using that experience to change what the booker might be requesting is in everybody's interest it's in their interest because you will be able to deliver something sensible that will actually work which in turn will give them a good party and their clients or their guests the best possible time when they attend whereas if you leave it to their imagination and let them come up with all sorts of crazy wild schemes I know from experience from years ago when I did things that I didn't think were a good idea at the time but I went ahead and said yes and lived to regret it big time and so I said to myself you know I'm I'm not doing this anymore I'm gonna if they if they don't see sense as I in, in my view of things if they don't see sense then I'll just say, OK, I'm really sorry that I can't do that for you. Perhaps you'd like to try somebody else who, who, who thinks that they can, because I can't see the point in saying yes to it and then and then dying a horrible death and being a disaster, a disaster that could easily be avoided. So getting the booker to do what you know is possible, I think, is much better than just saying yes to everything that they suggest. 
when you've been in magic for a while, I suppose it's probably true to say that you you gradually get a liking for certain types of plot or trick. Some people love card to pocket, for instance, and come up with all sorts of versions of that. Other people like card to wallet and, and have a number of different versions of that. And like everybody else, I have too. And one of my favourite things is coin and, and purse magic. And over the years, I've come up with quite a few different variations on magic using a bunch of coins and and not magicians' purses, but slightly larger, more traditional sort of ladies' purses, I suppose, with a clasp top. And um, because I've had so many different routines, I thought it might be interesting to produce an ebook of a collection of the best routines. And that's what I've just done, and it's a new release this month. It's called, not terribly imaginatively, I admit, the Coin and Purse Collection. And it has six routines, which some of which have appeared and have been sold individually, and some of them still are. Others have only been available to eClub Pro members, so being seen by people who have not been a member for the first time. Now, the, the e-book itself runs to about 40 pages and it has clear uh, well-described details of what how to do the effects and that's supplemented by a total of 80 color photographs the presentation the performance of the trick is actually not written down it's a link in the ebook which takes you to a page on my website where all the performance videos are and where you can watch any one of the six routines so you can you can get a really clear idea of the effect that you're trying to create because I think sometimes that can be a problem can't it if you you read a brief description of an effect and in your mind perhaps you imagine a particular sequence or or a particular handling that suggests itself to you and then you try to make that fit to the actual instructions you know, and you get confused because you'd imagined it in one way and now this person is describing something that doesn't seem to be quite how you'd achieve that. So I decided that since it's a digital book, I can do this. Obviously, I thought, well, I'll make it a live link. So long as you're online when you're reading it, then you'll be able to click straight to the relevant page on the website and you'll be able to watch the dem. So you'll know exactly what it is that the um, the particular routine does and therefore what you're trying to achieve. I think there's a lot to be said for for reading instructions. I know a lot of people say, oh, I don't bother reading instructions anymore. But I think reading instructions can sometimes make things very clear and you can read them over and over if you're not quite sure until you really completely understand what it is that is trying to be described. Because I think sometimes when it's done, if it's not filmed very well, then something can... You cannot clarify it because you can't see it whereas text I think can be more precise and be very um, carefully described to make sure that you definitely understand it and that's why I still think books and ebooks have a very important place and role to play in in magic instruction so uh, price of it is £30 for the six routines uh, the ebook is downloadable from markleverage.co.uk. It's called, as I say, the Coin and Purse Collection. And if you're into all you'll need, apart from a purse, is uh, in total a pack of cards, 
a few coins, one coin gimmick, and one sponge ball and a pen. And that's it. You can do all six routines if you have any or all of those. So go and have a look at my website and uh, read about the details of it there. And it'll tell you what all the routines are. There's some lovely magic there. And see whether you're interested in getting your copy. When you're trying to practice up a new trick to perhaps put into your strolling repertoire or into an act, there is a stage at which you have practiced all the various elements and you've got it, what you feel is up to speed. But there is no real substitute, is there, for taking it out and actually road testing it at a show. And I mean at a proper show, not just to a group of friends or your family. You just show them because there's the dynamic of that is nowhere near the same as the dynamic of doing a live show, a proper paid show. And it's amazing how no matter how long you think about something and no matter how much you've analysed it and pieced it together carefully and thought of all the possible variations and wrinkles that you could bring into it and practised and practised the handling, the patter, thought about the presentation and so on. When you actually get it out in front of real people in a live show situation, it's amazing how you can immediately tell whether or not you've got it right. And this happened to me. I've been playing around with, for a little while now, with a particular trick. And I'd, I'd had various handlings and variations and, and so on. And I'd, I got to the point where I thought I'd absolutely nailed it. I'd practised it a lot. I got it quite smooth in, in that sort of, in terms of technique. So now I just thought, well, I just got to take it out. So I took it with me and I took it to a table hopping gig that I was doing for a university. And as with all new tricks, it's always a little bit stressy. You know, you've got all your familiar things, things that you you live and die by. But now you've suddenly got this trick, this new thing, which, you know, you have confidence in because you've analysed it and practised it so much, but which you yet have to perform for real. So anyway, there was a group of six people at a table and they were a friendly group. So I thought, right, I thought, let's just start this trick. If I start it, I have to finish it. So I started the trick and I went through it and I did it okay. It wasn't brilliant, but it was okay. And it was just so funny because I got to the big denouement at the end of this trick and a sort of da-da moment and I got absolutely no reaction whatsoever there was just blank looks it was like people either hadn't quite understood exactly what the trick was what had happened or they'd lost the will to live or or something but that, that it was just it was so funny because i'm so used to having very positive laughter or or oh that's amazing or applause i got nothing so so I kind of put this trick away and did something else and it all finished fine. And then I was I had to wait a while because the main course had just come out. So I, I didn't want to perform. and There was no group free for me to perform to. And I was standing there and I was thinking about this reaction I got to this trick. And I was trying to rationalise about it. And I thought, well, maybe it's nothing to do with the trick. It's just that I chose a group who, for one reason or another, didn't find that particular trick that interesting i ought to do it some more 
But I knew in my heart of hearts that it wasn't that because they'd responded really well to everything else I'd done. I did about three or four tricks for them. So, and that was the, like the third of four tricks. So they were used to me by then uh, and so on. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, I think I know what it is. I took, well, two things, two main things. Firstly, I took too long to get to the, the end of the trick, the big finish, if you like. I, I talked too much. I'd overpattered it. I delayed. So the moment of where the magical impact should have been, the revelation of what that magical impact was, was like 30, 45 seconds later. And the gap was too long. So when I went, da-da, they'd forgotten why, I think, why what I was showing them was either important, relevant, interesting or amazing. So there was that. And then the other thing was that my actual handling my routining which I thought I'd nailed was cluttered and I thought you know I need to declutter this I need to take stuff out I need to stop talking about this quite so much and I need to shorten it and that's what I've done when I got home I cut a whole section out of the trick I changed the plot I cut right down on the patter I had the, the actual real strong ending of the trick much closer to the moment when it was revealed. And the improvement is 100%, which once again proved to me, not that I needed it being proved to me, but it did prove to me yet again, there is no substitute to taking stuff out on the road and actually performing it for people. Because it can really, if you analyse what you do, it can really open your eyes to something that either is great and doesn't need to be in any way fiddled with, but more often than not with a new trick, things that can be trimmed and changed and and improved. And we all learn every time we perform, but with a new trick, that learning curve can be pretty steep. So, salutary lesson there then. Well, that's all there's time for in this particular podcast. Thank you so much for spending half an hour of your time to listen. I hope you've enjoyed the topics that I've raised and the things that I've said. And I look forward, hopefully, to seeing you back here again in May.